Braves and baseball fans, it's time to take a trip from coast to coast across Major League Baseball. There it goes, a long drive. If it stays fair, home run. One strike away. Sandy into his windup. Here's the pitch. Swung out and missed the perfect game. Fly ball deep left center. Grissom on the run. Yes, yes, yes. And hello again and welcome to From the Diamond. I'm Grant McCauley, joined by Corey McCartney, as always, on Sports Radio 92.9 The Game from the Kia Studios here on a Saturday afternoon. We hope you're enjoying your weekend. It is, of course, I guess a holiday weekend of sorts as we have definitely stepped into fall with Halloween on deck here and, of course, uh, around baseball parts. The World Series is taking center stage, but the hot stove is on deck, Corey, and that, I think, unfortunately for Braves fans, came a couple of weeks earlier than we would have liked. If you were to have a baseball-themed Halloween costume on Monday night, what would you go as? Man, that's a good question. I think I'd have to go as like an old-time player, maybe maybe one of those all-wool flannel-type like uniforms that they wore in Field of Dreams, like an old-time throwback baseball player, early 1900s. I think the easiest one to pull off would be the Bobby Valentine disguise, right, when he put it back in the dugout. <laughs> like, if you're looking on the cheap, like, that would be the easy thing to pull yeah, off. it would require you wear a Mets t-shirt. Yeah, well, but, I guess yeah, that's true, yeah. Do that. But you know what was really funny? Uh, I don't know if you noticed this guy. When we walked into Truist Park around the NLDS, there was a guy, he was completely painted gold. He was basically a living baseball statue. You know, we got the Phil Necro statue, the Hank Aaron statue, and the Bobby Cox statue all around Truist Park and in Monument Grove. This guy was posing with people. He had all kinds of stuff going on. And it was just kind of bizarre to, to see because he's completely painted gold. <laughs> and it was just a, a living, breathing, walking statue. So, all right, that's cool. Uh, they pulled out all the stops. Maybe that's what I need to go as and then charge five bucks a pop. <laughs> I to, like it, yeah. You know, to, to pose for pictures with people. That, I don't think anybody's going to be paying to have their picture with me anytime <laughs> soon, though. So that's why we're on radio, and that's why we're talking about the guys that you do take pictures of. And that, of right. course, will be the men on the field. Unfortunately, though, of course, Corey, the Braves aren't on the field right now. Meanwhile, the National League East foe and the Philadelphia Phillies, who rolled right through the Braves in the NLDS, and then rolled right through the San Diego Padres and the NLCS have found their way into the World Series and one of the greater comebacks you'll find in World Series history as they rallied from five runs down against Justin Verlander. We're going to talk a lot about the World Series later on, but just quickly, the Phillies have continued to show that this is a for-real team and momentum is a very real thing. Yeah, I mean, sometimes a team just has it, right? And they just find ways to win and they find ways to win within dogfights. And man, this Phillies team, you mentioned, we'll get into it later, but it just feels like they just have that will to win baseball games when it truly matters in October. And dare I say, it sounds like the 2021 Atlanta Braves yep. sounded a club with pretty much the same win total, but they got momentum on their side and they rolled right through October, even if they weren't the odds-on favorite when everything began. And speaking of the Braves, speaking of the Phillies, I'm going to be joined a little bit later in the show by uh, former Braves great Dale Murphy. He'll be checking in at 5 p.m., so make sure you join us for that. Murph, of course, played for the Braves, played for the Phillies, and has been around Atlanta you know, in the years since then. He's got his great restaurant over at the Galleria. Murph's, if you haven't been there, I invite you to do that. It's yeah. a great part of your game day experience, but you know, Murph's got a lot of great thoughts about both the Braves and a little bit of insight on the Phillies because I guess it's fun to have uh, maybe two dogs in the fight when you go into October 
uh, in the case of Murph. We'll hear from him a little bit later, but of course, you know, one of the things that we're going to talk about a lot over the coming weeks is the future of one particular Atlanta Brave. Yeah, there's all kinds of decisions for Alex Anthopoulos to make each and every offseason, and we've seen some crazy things can happen in the course of an offseason, even if you have to sit around and wait for a lockout. It can still be a crazy winter, and that's what it was last year. I don't know if it's going to be quite as crazy, Corey, but with the departure of Freddie Freeman last year being the big headline, now you kind of have to shift your focus to Braves shortstop Dansby Swanson, who is going to be a free agent officially once this World Series is done, and what this means for both the shortstop position and for Dansby Swanson and, of course, for the Atlanta Braves. Yeah, honestly, I'm really surprised that we're even gotten to this point with him, right? You think about all the extensions that have been doled out. You know, you go back to Acuna and Albies, and obviously this year just the rash of them, you know, with Riley and Michael Harris II, Strider, you know, Matt Olson after you get him. And in watching Freddie Freeman walk, I thought for sure something was going to get done with Dansby Swanson. Probably, you know, before this last spring, mm-hmm. I, I really did not think that we would be getting to that this point with him. And obviously, he is writing, you know, his finest season yet uh, into into free agency. But certainly, you know, this is not a position I thought the Braves were going to be in with a guy who's, you know, I mean, sometimes I think we forget this is the longest tenured guy on this roster. Yeah, it is, and he's a guy that's been a part of this club. Now, with Freddie Freeman's departure, of course, Freddie was there when Bobby Cox was wrapping up and when Chipper Jones was wrapping up and the Braves were still doing a little bit of winning in the early 20-teens. Then they went into the rebuild, and Freddie was kind of the constant there. But in the midst of that rebuild, kind of the crown jewel of all the deals that were made, the one that really kind of lets you know, hey, the Braves could be a seriously good club with all these prospects they're stockpiling, and they just got the number one overall draft pick from the Arizona Diamondbacks less than six months after he was drafted. How in the world did that happen? That was Dansby Swanson in 2015. Corey, you and I were there in Nashville when this trade was pulled off, and I think it's still one of the moments that really sticks out to me with when you're charting the course of this team and you're wondering, okay, the Braves have been a very good baseball team, very competitive baseball team pretty much since 1991 with very few exceptions. How long are they going to wander in the wilderness before they get serious about winning again? And we found out the answer was about three, four years tops, and then they're winning divisions again. And as we all know, the champagne was flowing last October as the Braves won the World Series for the first time in two and a half decades. That was one of the more surreal scenes I think I've ever been part of covering this team because, I, as you remember, you know, the, it was going to be announced the next morning, but they wanted to allow us to have access to get you know stuff from John Coppola and John Hart the night before after they had already consummated the deal, but it mm-hmm. wasn't to be made official again until the next morning. And so we sat in there with a room with them and liquids were flowing and certainly you know it had a you know you could tell it's the second we walked in and they were they were uh, very, very much enamored yes. yes and you know obviously you know that was the the I, I think a real signal and I, you, mm-hmm. you can even remember his first spring training you know and being yep. there and um, obviously his arrival Baconator and all those fun son things of son, of, son of Baconator but um, the billboards on the you know coming down 75 that yep. day when he played his first game at Turner Field and the expectations everything that he had to, to weigh upon him coming home and um, you know, all that comes with that. And, and to be to the point he got to these past couple of seasons, I mean, I don't know that they could have really asked for a better story, you know, with Dansby Swanson, but certainly mm-hmm. I think the continuation of it being here in Atlanta would obviously be the, the next uh, hope for both sides. Yeah, obviously, local kid makes good is a story that everyone loves to yeah. see of a particular fan base. And the Braves are, are kind of a, a national fan base. And that's one of the big things that's, that stuck out to me is growing up a Braves fan. Well, yeah, I'm from Georgia, but there are Braves fans all across what they call Braves country. And yeah. of course, the TBS year years made them America's team before it became kind of the Dallas Cowboys moniker, maybe in the 1990s as well, different sport, but same general spirit. A lot of people across the country cheering for this team, and neither one of them were particularly good in the 1980s, but we'll put that all aside and just kind of focus back in on you know, really what it signaled when the Braves went out and got a, a talent like Dansby Swanson to put on top of all the other talents they were stockpiling 
took him a few years to, I think, find his footing at the big league level. There were some lows before there were the highs of winning, obviously, five consecutive division titles, winning a World Series, and being a huge part of that and being a guy that I think this year could take home a gold glove, has a, a shot at a silver slugger. That's another nice thing to maybe have on your mantle if things break right for Dansby Swanson. But he's riding, as you said, his finest season into free agency, and I'm just making sure that people understand you know, what Dansby Swanson has been. So I went back over his last four years because I know those first three years in the big leagues, there was an adjustment period even for a number one overall pick because remember Corey the Rocket that was strapped to his back? He didn't spend a lot of time in the minor leagues. He ended up having to go back to Gwinnett in 2017, something a lot of people might have forgotten. Well, he never stopped at Gwinnett before he got to the Braves. He never played a AAA game until he had to get demoted for a brief moment. But over the last four years, this is a guy who per 162 games is averaging a 260-plus batting average, 320 or so uh, on-base percentage, slugging in the, what, 450-ish area just below, and has been a four-and-a-half win player on average, averaging 25 homers, 35 doubles, 90 runs batted in, 96 runs scored, double-digit stolen bases, throwing the defense. This is a very good player going into his age 29 season, and he really does bear out if you look through fan graphs and weigh the last four years of all MLB shortstops as a top 10 and maybe a top five shortstop, and it kind of sneaks up on you even if you watch him play every day. So the year after they make the deal for him, remember we were at winter meetings in D.C. that year, and we were stayed at that really scary hotel there mm. right next to the, the harbor, and we're in the meeting, and oh, yeah. yeah, and we're kind of <laughs> in the, the war room there with Hart and Copalella, and John Hart told us, Dansby Swanson is the kind of player that you put into that number two spot in the lineup and you just leave him there. You don't worry about it. We think this is what he's built for. Yep. And think about it. It was until this season where he had more well, than 100 really games and it truly happened. And just I think the maturation process with him is, is I think, been the most uh, – I think, interesting thing to watch. And you think about this year, a first-time All-Star posted his best Fangraph War, his best weighted run creative plus in a you know full season, his best average in a full season, 25 homers, 96 RBI, 18 steals. Obviously, the defense you know led all National League players and outs above average, all shortstops and fielding runs prevented. Um, the two things I mentioned to you before that I thought was really interesting was we – I think when I looked at that pandemic-shortened year for him, which was statistically a really strong year for him, but he had never really put together that – above league average season at 162. He did mm-hmm. that this year, mm-hmm. and then just how good he was at home. I mean, only Austin Riley had a better uh, way to run create a plus than him at Truist Park, top 30 in all of baseball in that department. So, again, I think the maturation and, and finally getting that those numbers and those you know benchmarks that you waited for from him, and he put it together in the right time with free agency, you know, now obviously just stays away for him at this point. Yeah, he showed the power breakthrough, I felt like, in 2021, but he showed here in 2022 that it's, it's capable of staying here. You can count yeah. on him to get 55, 60, 65 extra base hits I think in a season is not asking too much and he's a guy that you know you look at the run scored I know that's a team stat at least for me it is but you got to find your way on base and, and kind of be on there at the right moments and if you're averaging 90 plus runs scored and 90 plus runs knocked in I mean you can put all the other metrics in too I'm interested in those but I know if you're doing those two things at that rate as a shortstop and you throw in that defense that you are a player who's well above league average and in fact an overall net positive to your team. And then you think about, you know, all of the things that Dansby Swanson means behind the scenes, which I think is an important discussion to have. And I'll ask Dale Murphy about that a little bit later because all of this stuff is in the mix for Dansby Swanson. But I went back over those four years to look at overall fangraph war and where everybody stands, particularly in line with this free agent class. Over the last four seasons, Trey Turner has a combined F war of twenty. Rafael Devers, who's expected to opt out with Boston at 18. Carlos Correa, 15 and a half. Dansby Swanson, you'll find, at 14. Hmm. Not far off whatsoever. I went and looked at Corey Seager, who signed a 10-year, 300-plus million dollar contract with the Texas Rangers last year. 
he was just below Dansby Swanson, which is also where you'll find Trevor Story and Rafael, uh, uh, excuse me, Javi Baez, who both signed big money deals, six years, $140 million with the Tigers and Red Sox uh, in the case of uh, Baez and Story, respectively. This, I think, starts to set the backdrop of what the market's going to be for Dansby Swanson because I feel like he's become a $20-plus million-a-year player. The question, I think, Corey, of course, is going to be how many years, but the Baez and Story deals, at the very least, seem to throw a pretty decent framework out there of what to expect. Yeah, and they both signed him at age 29, which is what Swanson's going to be right. going into next season as well. So if you look at that six years at 140, that's an AAV of 23.3 million, a little bit higher than what Olsen and, uh, and Riley got at 21. So, I mean, is that it? I mean, do you, do you, but do you keep him through age 34? Do you put some option years on the back end of that that they've kind of, they've kind of been you know doing with uh, seemingly all these deals to have those option years? I mean, the, 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 look at the, the last 10 seasons from him, uh, the last 10 seasons at shortstop. You think about Swanson, you know, a three to five win player, 25 homers, 30 doubles, that, you know, go, go, gold glove caliber defense, the kind of seasons that guys like that have had. I and mean, that's Francisco Lindor, Manny Machado, Story, Marcus Simeon, who switched positions, Javier Baez, Correa mm-hmm. Seeger. I mean, that's the kind of class that he's keeping at. And, you know, that 23-3 may be a realistic number when you think about an AAV on Swanson. Yeah, I think that 21 to 23 million a year, which is somewhere in the Riley and Olsen, you know, market is what to expect for Dansby Swanson because I feel like he's on par with those players, particularly because he's a premium defender at a premium position where you definitely want that. And he is on, as they say, the right side of 30. And I feel like within the first five years of that deal, so you're 29, 30, 31, 32, 33, if he's the kind of the player that he's been, particularly the last three seasons, based on the 162 numbers because of the COVID season, not really giving us a full sample of what that year might have been. But I think you could extrapolate out just based on a three-year sample what Dansby Swanson has become and what he is. I do think that that's probably in the neighborhood of what you're looking at as a 22 to $23 million a year player. Whether that's five, six years, I would assume six is probably what we're talking about here, and maybe those option years will be enticing beyond that. But it's hard for me to think, Corey, that for a second consecutive year that the Braves could lose a figurehead-style leader in the offseason and not feel some kind of way about that, whether that's just you know regret that can kind of come with that, whether it's the change that nobody really likes, but sometimes you just have to get used to it. It would just be a, another story that I just am surprised to see the Braves end up back in if this partnership does not continue. And I think about Travis Darno during the postseason, uh, during a press conference, and he said that he's learning things from a leadership standpoint from Swanson. And think yep. about how many years further along in his career uh, you know, he is than Swanson. I mean, obviously, you know, he's a little bit more of a veteran player, and he's even looking to a, a guy mm-hmm. like Swanson as that clubhouse leader. So I, I just can't – I think the secondary thing there, too, is if they can't get him, what are they all of a sudden going to go, all right, well, we're, pulling, we're willing to go 30-plus million on a Correa or a Turner yeah. or a Bogarts. I just can't see them treading those waters. They've just never done it before. And, and you've got a guy that you're comfortable with. He's comfortable here. Mm-hmm. Uh, I just think that whatever framework needs to be in place, I just can't see a scenario where they don't get it done. Yeah, I, I really feel like the partnership is there for both Swanson and for the Braves. It just makes an awful lot of sense. And you look at what the Braves shortstops have done production-wise – Dansby has really kind of blown the doors off yeah. of that. You have to go back over 100 years to find shortstop with that kind of run production. Well, actually, over 100 years into the late 1890s. That's how crazy this thing is. Be that as it may, a lot to talk about all winter long when it comes to Dansby Swanson and a lot of other decisions the Braves have to make. We'll jump back into that as we continue with this week in Braves baseball. Grant McCauley, Corey McCartney with you right here on From the Diamond on Sports Radio 92.9 The Game. Now, back to more From the Diamond, Sports Radio 92.9 The Game. And welcome back in. This is from the Diamond, Grant McCauley and Corey McCartney with you here from the Kia Studios on Sports Radio 92.9. The game as we continue our trek 
uh, through the week that was in Braves baseball. And unfortunately, we're not really getting to talk about a week that was uh, filled with playoffs and all the good stuff that we had uh, maybe hoped for and planned for based on our experience last year. But nonetheless, the work begins uh, for 2023, Corey, and uh, free agency will be one of the big topics. We just talked quite a bit about Dansby Swanson and the importance, I feel, for the Braves to you find a way to bring Swanson back, or they better have one heck of a plan B as far as the shortstop position is concerned because that would be another major change for this club, and we'll, of course, monitor that throughout the course of the winter. But I saw something pretty interesting. Uh, our friend Mark Bowman of MLB.com does a newsletter. If you haven't subscribed to that, I recommend you do. You can find uh, Mark on Twitter and subscribe to that, of course. But in this weekly newsletter, it, it was just kind of buried inside, kind of in the middle of the text, that uh, this little trade tidbit from the deadline. And, of course, we know Alex Antopoulos was very busy at the deadline. He got Rice Iglesias. He did the Odorizzi trade. He got Robbie Grossman. Ray Adrianza came back. I mean, there were a handful of deals that were going on, but one deal that was not made was Marcelo Zuna to the Washington Nationals for Patrick Corbin. That one did not get off the ground. That one did not happen. And for those unaware uh, of Ozuna's, I guess, um, production issues, he's been one of the least valuable players in the last two years in Major League Baseball. So there's that. He's owed $37 million over the next two years. So there's that. Patrick Corbin, meanwhile, has been, I think, statistically the worst starting pitcher in baseball for about three years running. I don't know that there's much tread on that tire. I know that he starts every fifth day, so there's something to be said for that. But you know, the Nationals owe him an awful lot of money over the next couple of years and some deferred money that's in there as well. So this would be your classic bad contract for bad contract swap, but even that was not enough to entice the Nationals to take Ozuna off the Braves' hands, even if it meant the Braves would be taking one of the worst pitchers in baseball back on the other end. So Corbin was due the balance of $23 million for 2022, $24 million in 2023, $35 million in 2024, and as you mentioned, $10 million deferred. I, I'm i almost stunned, though, that they couldn't— I mean, unless, unless this was, there was a scenario where the Braves said, yeah, we'll take him, but we need X amount of dollars to kind of help offset this thing. I would thing. think so, yeah. I mean, if, unless that was part of the conversation, I can't imagine a scenario where the Nationals wouldn't say— Thank you very much. Take you know, take this you know guy who's really struggling and mm-hmm. his money because they're obviously you know an impending sale for them. They already have deferred money going to Max Scherzer. They always have deferred money going to Steven Strasburg. So it makes little sense if they could have gotten out from underneath that contract that they wouldn't have pulled the deal. But maybe this also you know lets us know that Marcelo Zuna is basically nuclear when it comes to the rest of Major League Baseball and nobody wants their hands on him. I mean, thirty-seven million dollars is uh, what over the next two years, what, 18 per season on average. And then there's an option year, would have been a third year, but only a $1 million buyout. So uh, very fortunate for the Braves to have such a low buyout of that extra year on that contract. But, you know, these are the stories I think that we're going to be monitoring quite a bit over the course of the winter is going to be, of course, you know, what happens at shortstop, in particular what happens with Dansby Swanson. But, Corey, I think it does really point out to the fact that, and not that we didn't already know this based on the production that we're seeing, then you throw in the off-field trouble and everything else, Moving Marcelo Zuna and that money is not going to be a very easy task for any GM and whatever club takes him on. You know, is it really worth going through the exercise of, okay, we got a bad contract, you got a bad contract, let's figure out some kind of way that fits because nobody wants to eat the money and it's easy for us to sit here and say or anybody to sit there looking and say, I'll just eat the money and let him go. That's not really how the business always works. It's not the easiest thing in the world to do. But, you know, at some point, I don't know what what the point of diminishing returns is on the roster spot and the value of that roster spot to do something completely different with feeling that the money might already just be a sunk cost. Yeah, and I I sort of think of like the Robinson Cano situation, right? Like the Braves end up, you know, having him this past season for a little bit of time and the Mets are obviously still paying him mm-hmm. after letting him go. I think that you know, you might have to just get to that situation with it. I mean, because we obviously have heard Terry McGurk, you know, the chairman of the Braves say that there's going to be an increased payroll 
And I don't, you know, I think it's worth pointing out that increased payroll doesn't necessarily mean that you're going to go out and spend $40 million to get Jacob deGrom. No. That you're going to pay $30 million plus to keep Dansby Swanson in Atlanta. It could just mean, one, you know, opening the, you know, the books up later in the season for additions that you could make along the way. And also that you're willing to take on sunk costs and just let a guy move on and, and you know, just accept the fact that you're just going to have to eat that money. So uh, I think that's all on the table with Azuna. I just think a scenario where a team is going to give them value for value at this point just feels like it's not going to happen. No, Marcelo Zuna was slashing 222, 278, 397. This is a middle-of-the-order bat with a sub-400 slugging percentage and 84 OPS plus if you're scoring at home. That's despite 30 homers and 25 doubles. The problem is he basically doesn't get any other hits and doesn't do much damage. He doesn't walk a ton and strikes out enough. So it's basically a season's worth of plate appearances from 2021 and 2022 and it just looks like one big, giant, bad year. Yep. And that's just not even factoring in some of the other things that have created all of the, the I don't even know what you call all the situations that, that revolve around Marcelo Zuna, the distraction that it has to be to the team. I don't care who says, you know, well, we, we're tuning that out. We're putting that over here. We're putting it to the side. We're letting him handle that. We're letting legal processes play out. I understand all of that's in there, but it has to be a little bit hard to ignore. You know, when these kinds of things are going on, not just once, but twice. And even if the second one is one of those where maybe he just, you know, was in the wrong place at the wrong time, it still doesn't seem like a place that you'd want to be because you've already been in bigger trouble earlier and you might be making an even greater effort to keep your nose clean and keep yourself out of any situation where something could go wrong. I didn't think he was going to be back to begin with. This no, season, I didn't right? Mean. I mean, I thought we had seen the last of him, and obviously he ends up playing quite a bit down the stretch. And I think anyway, was everyone was surprised by that. And, and obviously, Brian Snicker said, "Look, if he's here, I got to find, uh, I got to find a use for him. If he's on the roster, you got to play him." And I think uh, whatever way you want to look at that, I mean, I think that's the reality uh, of a major league manager. You can't just have a, a, a de- you know, black hole roster spot. You got to find this uh, use for a guy if he's on your on your roster and on your bench and. Uh, I will be I will be much I think more surprised if he's still around opening day of twenty three than I was the fact that he came back in twenty two. Yeah, at this point, you know, like I felt like when he came back in twenty twenty two and had you know came back into spring training, apologized for all the off field issues that he had, you know, the domestic issue that he had and that scuttled his twenty twenty one season. In addition to the broken hand, so he obviously was injured as well. But when he came in, apologized for all that, and you thought, okay, well. You know, uh, life's about second chances sometimes, and we don't always get to be the ones who choose that. But you hope that when people do get a second chance that they do make the most of it and that they are, in fact, contrite and have the opportunity and and all of those things. And that's great to say and and great to, you know, have out there. But then there's the, okay, you're a Major League Baseball player being paid a, a lot of money to be a productive member of the team, and now this guy's just not a productive member of the team. And then you have other things that go into that. So not to you know bang this drum for the rest of the segment, but just as one of the big stories for the Braves and as in the backdrop of a team that has moved into the top ten in payroll, as the Braves have, and all of Major League Baseball, which the first time in, in quite a while that they've been treading that territory year after year, you kind of have to go back to, what, the late 90s, early 2000s maybe, uh, around the time of the AOL Time Warner merger and yep. all the, the big things that were going on at that time when Ted Turner was still at the helm for the Braves. This is just one of those things that, you know, no matter how big your payroll is, as you pointed out, this is a big chunk of money that somebody's got to figure out and reckon what is the best way to get some use out of this. Otherwise, you know, just kind of decide it's a sunk cost and, and try to move on. And, and like you said, not have that black hole on a roster spot as well, because you could get some kind of use out of it, even if it's somebody who's just designed to be a pinch hit player, platoon player, whatever it may be. 
it's easy for us just to say, eat the money and move on. Right. But I, I just think you, you get to a point where that just has to be the reality. And that's, I think that the Braves are very much getting to that place with Marcelo Zuna. Well, it certainly could be. We'll continue to talk about all of these big decisions that the Braves have to make. And shortstop is at the top of the list. What might happen with Marcelo Zuna? Heck, what might happen in left field? Because you've got Eddie Rosario under contract. He didn't have a great year either, but he's got a $9 million due to him. And then an option year for 2024, which can be talked about probably after you figure out what he's able to do in 2023. What do the Braves want to do with DH is a whole other question because this is a position that they probably want to find something better than a revolving door of who's not catching that day and what platoon left fielder might be available to them. So if you can get creative via trade or via free agency, you've still got to find at-bats for that player. And yep. you know, having Marcel Ozuna on the roster doesn't seem to be pieces that are going to fit together if you're going to pursue another bat to put there. But it's not just the Dansby Swanson and the dumping of Ozuna that might be the big stories for the Braves this winter. What about the return of a top reliever? Because Alex Anthopoulos spoke after the season to the media about the possibility of Kenley Jansen returning, and it sounds like, Corey, that door is open. Our friends over at TMZ, and I use the term friends very loosely, spoke to Jansen recently at the L.A. airport, and he had great things to say about his time in Atlanta. was also peppered with questions about returning to the Dodgers, potentially I thought Jansen handled it really well, and he was very, very uh, complimentary of everything that went on with the Braves and how much he enjoyed his time with this team. Uh, what do you think the odds are that we might see Kenley Jansen in a Braves uniform in 2023? Because I- I'm of the mind that all the good relievers you can get just make your bullpen that much better. I mean, they were so good with him, and then obviously when they got Rossiel Iglesias and they were able to kind of sell, you know put him ahead of, of Jansen, they were just that much better. I mean, they, they were literally the best bullpen in baseball after they got Iglesias, and you know, Jansen coming off a year at 35 years old where he led the National League in saves, coming off his best expected ERA in the last six years, best expected batting average since 2016, projected at 13.8 for this next year per spot track. Think about the Dodgers' struggles in the ninth, though. Their 402 ERA was 21st overall. Craig Kimbrell was a failed experiment for them. I think they could easily overpay for commodity that they know. Mm-hmm. And I think that's where things could get interesting. Do the Braves want to get into a situation where you're almost going, you know, having to outbid the Dodgers for Kenley Jansen? I don't think that's the case. No. And you've got Iglesias, but did he like Atlanta in the scenario enough knowing that they were that good overall that he wants to stay put? I mean, he's obviously, you know, he's going to be in a fine situation no matter which side he picks if it comes down to those two. But, um, you know, I think that the, the comfort here, and he had a lot of great things to say about Atlanta. I mean, I think, you know, it, it, it's it's great to have as many as weapons as you can in that bullpen. If they can have Glacius and Jansen, uh, again, I think that's the best of both worlds. Yeah, and I got a chance to talk to Kenley Jansen quite a few times throughout the course of the season. Had him on the show earlier this summer just talking about what enticed him to become an Atlanta Brave, and you'd be shocked to know that he was another kid that grew up watching the Atlanta Braves. His favorite player was Fred McGriff. <laughs> he was excited about joining this club, and he got to play with a, a fellow Curacao native and Ozzie Albies. Yeah. So I think that was something that was enticing. And, of course, you get to go to a team that just won the World Series, and he got a firsthand look at it based on the fact that the Braves had to climb over the Dodgers finally to get to that World Series. Uh, but, Kinley, if you look at it, I mean, this is a guy with a Cooperstown resume, one of the best closers of his generation. I know Craig Kimball didn't work out in L.A., I would say that I know Kinley had a couple of stints this year of seven to ten days where he had some bad outings. He blew a handful of saves here or there. But you look at the overall body of work and and everything beyond that would suggest that he's still a very useful and very talented big league pitcher. The expectation, I think, would be that he would continue to close. And how much can you afford to pay your setup man, in this case, Rice Iglesias, to not be the guy getting the ninth inning? Or should we be so far beyond that? that we're just thinking about, these are my high-leverage relievers, this is how we're going to deploy them, this is where we have the most success, and 
hey, Rysel Iglesias gets the same check either way. I think that's the the opportune way of thinking in this era, right? I mean, I think right. we see Should so be. many managers approaching it like that. Like, I'm going to use my weapons uh, accordingly, and I'm just, mm-hmm. you know, I'm going to get the outs when I need the outs as opposed to having a guy, you know, that I remember Jim Johnson telling me years ago, like, relievers are more comfortable when they have that understanding of this is where I'm at, this is my inning. Yeah. But I think, you know, these past few years, the way you've just seen managers just put, say, I need my high leverage guy in this situation and yeah. just move on for, and, and just approach it that way. I think that makes having both of them make sense. But again, you're paying so much money for Iglesias now, who you got with the ultimate goal that this is going to be a guy that closes games for us. Yeah, and but I do feel like with Rysel Iglesias coming in and being in that mix in the 7th and 8th, along with A.J. Minter before you got to Jansen, I mean, the Braves really needed that too because hey, Tyler Matzik was not the same pitcher, and we found out why at the yeah. end of the season. He had Tommy John. They're not going to have him next year. They were without Luke Jackson all year as well. Kirby Yates should be in the mix next season, so that's I think could be a positive, and he seemed to show signs of you know being, I think, is a useful pitcher. So... Maybe all of this, you know, the signs point to the Braves going in a different direction with their ninth inning duties and some of their high leverage duties. But I wouldn't necessarily close the door on it because I do think Kinley was a, a big contributor to what the Braves have created as a winning culture because he's a winning ball player. I mean, just don't get that twisted. He may, like all closers, have a few blown saves here and there. Hey, Mariano Rivera got walked off at the end of the 2001 World Series. <laughs> it happens sometimes. Yep. It just, I mean, Justin Verlander couldn't hold a five-run lead for the Houston Astros <laughs> and came one of the World Series. I mean, like great pitchers do struggle at times, but I felt like Kinley was a lot more good than anything that you could say to detract from what he gave the 101-win Braves in 2022. We'll continue our Braves discussion coming up next because we got some awards that are going to be handed out here in the next couple of weeks as the World Series wraps up, and some Braves were named finalists for a handful of those and could be some more. I'm Grant McCauley. He's Corey McCartney. We'll continue our Braves discussion right here on From the Diamond on Sports Radio 92.9 The Game. Back to Grant McCauley for more From the Diamond on Sports Radio 92.9 The Game. And welcome back in. This is From the Diamond. Grant McCauley alongside Corey McCartney from the Kia Studios on Sports Radio 92.9 The Game on this Saturday afternoon. We appreciate you joining us here on the show. If you like what you've been hearing, make sure you subscribe to From the Diamond wherever you get your podcast. And, of course, find us on the Odyssey app. You can also follow me on Twitter. I'm at Grant McCauley. He is Corey J. McCartney. And you can find 92.9 The Game at 92.9 The Game as well. If you want to follow us along on Twitter, we'll even answer a few questions if we get some before the show is over. So, you know, you've got uh, an hour and 20 minutes. You're on the clock. Well, less than that because we'll be off the air by then. But either way, if you got some questions, feel free to throw those out there. we got more than an hour to go with some baseball talk. And, of course, we got more Braves to go to close out this hour. And I want to talk about some awards because, you know, after we were able to get through our discussion about the Gold Glove and why Michael Harris should be a finalist, if not the winner of the Gold Glove, and if he's not, that's okay, but I just felt like his name should have been uh, on the podium or on the dais or whatever you want to call it, uh, we're going to get more of these as the World Series ends. But there were five Braves finalists for Silver Slugger Awards. Third baseman Austin Riley, shortstop Dansby Swanson, first baseman Matt Olson, catcher Travis Darno, and hey, center fielder Michael Harris the second. Go. It seems like Riley and Darno to me have the strongest cases at winning the award at their position. And, uh, you know, that's not to say that the other Braves didn't have fine years, but it just seems like those two are the guys that might actually have a chance of uh, taking this hardware home, Corey. Yeah, I, Riley, in terms of home runs, is the only one uh, amongst those five that leads uh, the finalists in a category. So uh, I think that's the interesting thing with him. I mean, 
I wouldn't be surprised. You know, they had four winners in each of the last two seasons. They've never had five uh, in franchise history. I don't think that's going to happen. I wouldn't be surprised though if Swanson and Harris. You know, you think about you know Mookie Betts is there, Brandon Nimmo. I think those guys could. I think Harris may, makes some sense. He's fourth in WAR, seventh in way to run create a plus. Uh, Darno's not getting it. You know, with JT Romuto and Will Smith, I think they've got him absolutely beat in in every category. But it's interesting with Riley, third in way to run create a plus, third in in uh, in WAR. First in home runs, he's got Machado and Arenado ahead of him uh, in war, and they're both finalists as well. So uh, I, I don't think the hall is going to be quite as big as it's been the last couple of years, but the Braves do have a couple guys with some interesting cases. Now, would Max Fried get one by default? Because were <laughs> there to still be a silver slugger pitcher since he's the reigning defending, does he get to continue getting one in perpetuity each year just as kind of a, a courtesy, if you will? Because he's going to be the answer to a trivia question, it looks he like, is, for quite yeah, some time. He is. So we'll see how that whole thing plays out. I would be surprised, though, if you do look overall, you know, some run production for Will Smith has him beyond what Travis Darno did. But when you consider that Darno gave up a lot more playing time to William Contreras yeah. than did Will Smith, and we're talking about Will Smith, the catcher, and not the actor, and of course not the former Braves pitcher. But I don't know. I feel like Darno might have an outside chance, kind of a dark horse, if sure. you will. Certainly deserve to be on the list of guys. And I saw one of the phenomenons. Somebody pointed this out when I put out the whole release that had the full screenshot of all the National League finalists, and we're not going to go through uh, the 36 players or whatever it is to get there. But last year, apparently, all of the positions, I think it was eight out of the nine, the first person that they listed was the one who won the, the <laughs> won the Silver Sluggers. So. Maybe you're announcing it by putting it out, basically. And if you go back down and look through it this year, you might not be surprised to see all of the guys that you think could win at that position being listed first, which I find to be pretty fascinating. Spoiler alert, yeah. And it can't just come down to alphabetical order either. So there you have it. But when we do talk about awards, one big one that we're going to have a big discussion about and anticipate a Braves player taking it home is the Rookie of the Year Award. And I think Michael Harris and Spencer Strider, whichever one of them wins it. I've, I've, I've thought about this a lot as the season is wrapped up. And you know, everybody points to Harris. He's the everyday guy in center field, the guy that was kind of a catalyst for the team turning it around. But if you think about what happened at that same time, the Braves rotation really needed a boost. It really needed somebody to step up and fortify it. Spencer Strider stepped into the rotation around the same time that the Braves really turned their season around and gave the Braves in the starting rotation and on the pitching staff Everything that Michael Harris was giving the Braves on in the lineup and center field and offensively speaking. So whichever one of these guys wins it, I honestly don't think that the other one either A, got robbed, or B, got shortchanged whatsoever because both of them have extremely strong cases, though I know, traditionally speaking, position players seem to have the inside edge. So Sporting News named Spencer Strider their Rookie of the Year in a survey, 212 players. He got 47% of the vote, finishing ahead of Harris, who had 41%. And, yeah. you know, that, that and could it end might up, be that close. It might be that close. You're right. I mean, obviously, it was. I, I sort of look at them as history. One of them, you know, Strider, you know, a lot of historical nuggets with him. And then just, I think, overall impact with Harris. But think about this. 11 of the last 18 years, Sporting News has mirrored the Baseball Writers Association, and they got both of them right. But they've only had one right in each of the last two seasons. So interesting, yeah, and that's, that's for both leagues. That's for both leagues, yeah. So I mean, obviously, Strider's you know season was fantastic. You know, led all qualified rookie starters. You know, two hundred two strikeouts. You know, fastest to two hundred in history. Uh, you know, two six seven ERA. I mean, Harris was obviously fantastic as well. I don't think you can go wrong with either one. I wouldn't be surprised to have it see to see it end up being as close as this you know survey of the players was. But again, I think it really does go back to that 
two vantage points. You know, to me, Strider is all about history, mm-hmm. and Harris was all about overall impact. Yeah, I, I think it does in in some respects, but I, I really do feel like the two are kind of mirror images of one another in terms of what they meant to their individual position groups. And I'll just say position group, the outfield for Michael Harris, but also the lineup. So I mean, there is yeah. that because I mean he's on both sides of this, but. For Spencer Strider, it was the historical impact of all of his strikeouts, of course, drawing a lot of attention to him. But this Braves rotation was very much looking for some uh, solidifying. You had Max Fried. You had the breakout season of Kyle Wright going on. Charlie Morton was up and down. Ian Anderson was having trouble as well. And you just kind of wondered, all right, well, he's still going to answer the question about the fifth spot in the rotation. (laughs) When we were going to figure it out. And it was Memorial Day by the time that Spencer Strider finally got that opportunity. And all he did from basically that starter, at least from June the 1st on, like the rest of the Braves, was win, 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 and win some more and strike out a lot of batters on his way to doing it. I know that the, probably the most recent adv- or, or recent example of a Braves player, Braves pitcher having a chance to win the Rookie of the Year award and falling victim, I guess if you want to call it that, to the position player, uh, usually getting a little bit more consideration, was Mike Soroka in 2019. Yeah. Just about any other year, I feel like Soroka could have won that award, but Pete Alonso set a rookie home run record for the New York Mets and deservingly won the Rookie of the Year that, that year as well. I don't think you can get it wrong with Strider or Harris. I mean, I think, I, I mean, we've talked about this before. If you want to cut the thing in half and give half to each of it, I, I don't think there's anything wrong with that as well. I mean, just that's make happened two before. Smaller stat, that's, that's right. Two smaller. I, I would. I think they just need to sit down and come up with a calendar, and they can figure out who gets to take it home. You know, the X amount of days. I get it on the weekends. You get it during the week. Oh, time share. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> I think they should totally take that route with it. But it's going to be close, and they've both had fantastic seasons. In whichever direction it goes, you know, maybe this is Harris gets the you know the BBWAA award and Strider will have the sporting news and they can both go home happy. Well, think about it this way as well. Either one of them, if you take them away from the Braves this year, I still think you're taking away five to six, maybe more victories from this Atlanta Braves overall total. And yeah. I'm not just talking about wins above replacement. Yes, you can look at that and, yeah, the math might check out there as well. But there are just so many tangible moments that both of them spread out every fifth day for Strider and on a pretty much everyday basis for Michael Harris, just given what he gets to do and what he did do that they made that club that much demonstratively better. And you could really point to the two of them being the guys that did that. Now, the other awards, when you look at MVP, I'm not sure the Braves really have anybody that's going to get inside the top five of that this year, though Austin Riley might creep in and get a few of those votes. I don't know. Dansby Swanson could get some down-ballot votes for MVP as well. You look at Cy Young, I think that the same thing, down-ballot for Max Fried and possibly for Spencer Strider. And one other Braves pitcher, Corey, that you brought to my attention, based on at least one projection – uh, could surprise some folks by winning the Cy Young Award, but that's just kind of an outlier, it sounds like. Kind of walk us through how exactly Kyle Wright's name got on this list, and yeah, we know he led the majors and wins. I thought this was really crazy. So ESPN has this Cy Young predictor, right? And it has a formula that's you know based on a, a number of different uh, variables. Uh, wins is obviously a part of that, but sure. Wright has plus 50,000 odds to win, uh, and he leads everyone with 178.7 Cy Young points. He's 9.6 ahead of Julio Urias. Um, they have El- they have Sandy Alcantara fifth. I mean, this is the guy that everyone thinks is going to end up with yeah. it. I mean, even Kenley Jansen's in the is in the top five. It, it's not been an exact science that they've Wait, predicted. What? Yeah, can they have Kenley Jansen in the top five of this Cy okay. Young predictor? And how can that be anything other than and in the case? And again, this is not taken away from it, but these are these are team stats. Obviously, the win for pitchers is a very flawed way to look at what a pitcher's value is. Now, I want my pitchers to get as many wins as possible because it lets me know they've been contributing on that day to winning that baseball game. Same thing for saves. But I have a hard time imagining that all the projections and whatever it is that goes into this formula 
is looking much beyond wins and saves for those two guys when you do compare them to some of the other resumes, Sandy Alcantara just being maybe the biggest of those because Sandy Alcantara was doing something in terms of innings and in terms of quality that no other pitcher in baseball was doing last year. So it's based on uh, in, you know uh, earned runs per inning, obviously, strikeouts, uh, uh, saves, shutouts, in in uh, in victory bonuses, which is obviously where you know Harris guy, I'm excuse me, Wright got a big push on this, and it's not been an exact science. I mean, it's predicted both winners eight times since 2002. The last of those coming in tw- uh, 2016. Um, it's got about a 68 percent accuracy uh, in, in, in over the last 20 years, but. I mean, you know, Wright does have an interesting case. I mean, he, he led the league with wins. You know, 174 yeah. strikeouts are second only to Sandy Alcantara among you know players in the Cy Young predictor top ten. The third most innings, you know, tra- trailing Alcantara and Max Freed. Um, I just, I, it's just not realistic. But I just found it interesting that this formula and, all, and everything considered in Wright's season that they had him atop of it. Yeah, it's just surprising to see him projected even in front of Max Fried in terms of just overall quality. And maybe even to a lesser extent, though, I could look at the innings and say, well, maybe Spencer Strider, by not being a qualified starting pitcher, doesn't really factor in in the same ways. But when you think about what he did and the limited amount of innings he did throw, you know, the Cy Young Award does not require you to be a qualified pitcher. Obviously, anybody can win it. Reliever, starter, a starter who turns into a reliever, reliever who turns into a starter. In the case of Strider, it really doesn't matter. I just find it a little bit surprising though that's not a knock whatsoever at the fact that all 21 of those wins for Kyle Wright were incredibly important and incredibly impressive when you consider that this is a kid that went up and down, up and down, up and down from AAA to the big leagues and back again and had two career wins marching into 2022 to do what he did was nothing short of incredible. A breakout season and a huge reason why the Braves got where they did. So to tell you how ridiculous the Cy Young predictor is, they have Daniel Bard from the Rockies 10th. Oh, if Daniel Bard is in the top ten of the Cy Young voting, I think uh, he, you know, I just, I just don't see it happening. I mean, it's just, it's just not going to happen. But I, I, they may not get it right. But at least you know, it forecasts what could be the best returns in two decades. They haven't had anyone finish higher than fifth since Hudson in 2010. They haven't had two players in the top ten since Tom Glavin and Greg Maddox in 2000. So huh. maybe that happens. But I do not think. Daniel Bard is going to finish 10th, unfortunately. Cy Young predictor, I think you got that wrong. No, and I don't think we're going to build the graphic to track that here on the show either, but and we may have to vet some of these things before they make it to air if this is what the formula is yeah. for, uh, for some of these things. But you know what? It's the offseason, and awards are a part of that. I think it's an exhausting part for some people, particularly when you go through what we did last year with a whole exercise about, well, at the very least, this guy should be a finalist for this thing, even if he doesn't win this thing. But the yeah. whole thing is subjective. Yep. It's all voting and Popularity contest, yes. Performance, yes. It's all just mixed in there. And, you know, basically one guy gets to win it each year, except in the case when there's a rare tie, and every once in a while we get one of those. But regardless, I just feel like the Braves have had, you know, two of the best rookies simultaneously that we've ever seen for this club. And that's something that, you know, when you do look back on the 2022 season and what it might have been a continuation of in in the terms of winning the division again, but also a sign of what is to come for a team that, a lot of people looked at and said, well, your farm system's pretty much wiped out, so you know, you, you're know you going to have to go rebuild that thing again. But that's what happens to winning clubs, typically, unless you're the Dodgers, for some reason, <laughs> who managed to have a, a top-five farm mm-hmm. system and a top-five record in baseball. And I'm going to get to them later in the show. But to have this duo of Harris and Strider in the same season doing what they did, I think there's a historical precedent for that because you go back through you know, year upon year upon year for the Braves, you just don't seem to have some the two rookie standouts on both sides that can do that kind of thing, an offensive player and a pitcher. I've ran the numbers, and they've, they've never had a a better combined war from a position player and a pitcher that were rookies than you. they had this season 
with Michael Harris II and Spencer Strider. This was legitimately the best rookie combination they have had in franchise history. Yeah, I was trying to think about some of the early 90s guys because, you know, David Justice won the Rookie of the Year in 1990, and Steve Avery came up that year. But Avery had his great season after he had exhausted rookie eligibility in 1991. Now, he was only 21 years old, but he had already exhausted rookie eligibility when he won his 18 games the very next year. So a big... It's very hard to line these two things up, I guess is what I'm saying, amongst rookies. The Braves have had plenty of all-stars, plenty of great players, plenty of Hall of Famers, but finding two rookies to do what they did this in the same season is just kind of unheard of. So they actually, Harrison Strider beat a record set in 1945 oh. by Cardin, Gillenwater, and Bob Logan, who had a combined 6-6 war. Now, Bob Logan was a shortstop, was he not? Yeah. Yeah, so he was one of the shortstops that I had to go back and do the research on. Hey, when's the last time a Braves shortstop did XYZ offensively? When I was looking for Dansby Swanson stats, and that should tell you a lot about yep. you know how rare it is for somebody to be as offensively uh, good as Dansby Swanson was at the shortstop position for the Braves in the year 2022. So that'll wrap things up as far as uh, awards go. Don't worry, though. To be continued, we'll <laughs> find out who the finalists are and uh, what other discussions we can have about that as From the Diamond continues throughout the course of the offseason. But coming up, he's an all-time great Brave and a former Philly as well, and he's joining me to talk about the 2022 season for Atlanta and the World Series trip for those Phillies. Dale Murphy is up next right here on From the Diamond. Grant McCauley, Corey McCartney with you on Sports Radio 92.9 The Game. All right, play ball! Your place for all things MLB and our Braves. This is From the Diamond on Sports Radio 92.9 The Game. And welcome back to From the Diamond right here on Sports Radio 92.9 The Game. Grant McCauley and Corey McCartney with you as always here. Thanks for making part of your Saturday. Thanks for spending part of your Saturday with us. And I'm thrilled our next guest is spending part of his Saturday with me. I'm joined right now by a longtime Atlanta Brave and, of course, Braves Hall of Famer and a former Philadelphia Philly, though we don't always talk about that. He is Dale Murphy, the two-time MVP, joins me right now on From the Diamond. Murph, really appreciate your time, and uh, it's great to catch up with you. Well, thank you, Grant. Great to be on with you, and it's a great time of year. Looking forward to the World Series. I was looking forward to it a, a week or ten days ago. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> well, they were playing so good, and I just really admired the second half. It was yeah. kind of a, a different deal than last year, but the fact that they had just kept plugging away, kept plugging away, couldn't overtake the Mets, couldn't overtake the Mets, and then swept the Mets. I just really felt good the way they were finishing, and fortunately yeah. it just didn't work. No, it didn't play out the way we wanted it to, unfortunately. But it did feel like with that sweep of the Mets, maybe it was a little playoff preview. Maybe they were peaking at the right time. But unfortunately for the 2022 Braves, despite 101 wins, their most in nearly two decades, an early playoff exit is what people are going to focus on because we've heard that old phrase, World Series or bust. And the Braves should know a lot about the World Series because they just won it a year ago. But when you consider the early start for this team and where they were just around Memorial Day, I think it's kind of amazing, and, and you could really look at this as a good year for the Braves to overcome their slow start and what was really starting to feel like a pretty serious World Series hangover. Absolutely. In fact, I was surprised, Grant. How far back were they at one point? Ten and a half games. What was, yeah, I mean, I was I was just surprised. I think, I think it was after 2021, last year, you're kind of figuring, well, they're going to be fine because this is what this team does. Mm-hmm. And, they, and sure enough, they were. Uh, and you start to expect things like that. I hope they don't make that a habit. I mean, uh, <laughs> yeah. it, it makes things a little dicey, but I just thought it was a great season in so many ways. Obviously, you're right. You always look at what happens at the end. We all know that it's so hard to repeat in mm-hmm. baseball. 
uh, well, any sport for that matter, but especially baseball, seems like, uh, you know, absolutely. There are so many positives you can take from the season and from the ball club. I think on the path they're on, I think they are going to be in the thick of things for quite a while. And that's what you want to be. That's what you want to be. Yeah, you most certainly do. And they have had the opportunity the last few years to get themselves into October and to advance a little bit further along. You can't advance much further than winning the World Series, but to have a seat at that table every October, Braves are very excited about that. And of course, the fan base is re-energized for that as well. I like to go back and find the kind of quirky statistics or just statistics that kind of let you know just how difficult it is to do something. And you talked about repeating as a World Series champion. Well, nobody's done it in all of baseball since the New York Yankees in the late 90s and at the turn of the millennium. Prior to that, yeah, yeah, the Toronto Blue Jays do it. And some clubs in the American League had a little bit of success with this whole thing. The last National League club to win the World Series in back-to-back years was the Big Red Machine in 75 and 76. I thought that was pretty crazy. Then I looked to see how many National League clubs have repeated as World Series champions, and the list includes exactly three teams. You have the Big Red Machine that I just mentioned, the 1921 and 22 New York Giants, and the 1907-1908 Cubs. That's just how difficult it is for a National League team to repeat, and a lot of that has to do with the fact that the New York Yankees seem to really enjoy winning the World Series the last century. <laughs> that that's remarkable. I I had heard about the Reds, and I you know I knew it was twenty some years ago since the Yankees, but the rest of those numbers you're throwing out there is is amazing. And, and a lot of people say, I mean, it's great about the game, mm-hmm. but a lot of people will say looking at the Dodgers and the Braves year this year, is there a way to give a little bit more of an advantage to those teams that do what they do over the course of 162 games and prove, you know, that they are a superior team? I know baseball is baseball, but I just don't know if there's an answer. Maybe this is just, you know, the fact, but I know the Dodgers had their way with the Padres, right? Mm-hmm. I, don't, I don't know what the uh, other records were with the Braves division, but I know the Dodgers had their way with the Padres and they got into a five-game series. You know, it's baseball, but man, there's just something to being a 162-game season-long competitive team that seems like we got to figure out. I know we're trying, yeah. but I don't know. Have you heard of any possible other ideas, or is it just baseball? Is that the way it's going to be? Not yet, but, you know, with baseball, one thing I've learned is that they will come through and they will change some stuff, some things you ask for, some things that you don't ask for. But I feel yeah, like that this, this playoff format, it has room to grow, and hopefully it's something that is yeah. going to grow as we move forward. Because I do think that – there might have been a little bit of a cooling-off period for some of these number one teams. And even the Astros, were it not for Jordan Alvarez, they might have succumbed to the Seattle Mariners yes. in their uh, series. So you never know how these things can shake out. But uh, as we yeah, talk about the 2022 20, Braves, and I know one guy that you really enjoy watching is Austin Riley. He followed up his 2021 season with another big year, and now the Braves are banking on him being that guy for the next decade as they handed him a nice big contract extension, one of the latest of the young Braves' core to be locked up for the foreseeable future. But from one slugger to another one, from one generation to another, how do you size up what Riley has done in this second season, the second big year for him, and what those expectations are going to become for him annually moving forward with this nice big contract? Well, I was really happy for him. And there's just something, I guess, Grant, he kind of reminds me of myself a little bit, you know, kind of a big guy and kind of a quiet guy. I remember uh, five or six years ago, maybe a little bit longer, I was going around the Braves minor leagues Mm -hmm. and doing some part-time stuff, watching some kids. And 
you know, I met him and watched him and, you know, was really impressed with him. His game, you know, wasn't quite polished yet. But I remember John Scherholz asking me, he goes, you know, what do you think about Austin? And I just said, oh, you know, I think he's just like everybody else. I think his future's really bright. And he said, what do you think about his leadership capabilities? I remember he asked me something like that. And I said, well, he's going to be a leader, but he's going to be, he's, he's reserved and that's okay. It's not that you can't lead and, and kind of have a reserved personality, but I think that's what kind of draws me to him uh, is just his overall game. Grant, I don't know. Maybe you know his defensive statistics at third, but I see him make some remarkable plays. And so it's obvious, you know, his maturity offensively, he's just turned into a dangerous hitter. Mm -hmm. Dangerous by meaning he can get a single the other way get a single right field or he could, you know, hit a home run yeah. and carry the team for a month or so. So I've just always been impressed with him. He's just a great kid. And uh, I'm glad to see the Braves lock him up as they've been uh, really good at evaluating talent and locking up the guys they want to lock up. I'm glad to see that he's going to be around for quite a while. Yeah, and I think that the Braves would be very happy to see that. One of the big reasons they locked him down is the overall net value they feel like Austin Riley is going to bring. But the man that plays to his left, I mean, we're going to be talking an awful lot about him this winter, yeah. and that, of course, is Dansby Swanson. So as I'm joined by Dale Murphy here on From the Diamond, and we talk about the Braves, the 2022 outlook, the aftermath, if you will. But as we watch the Braves this season, it was kind of Dansby Swanson's year in terms of putting a lot of things together. Now he's heading into free agency off a career season, and we just saw another longtime Braves staple leave last winter. And you've been around this club some over the years you talked about, and you've seen Dansby go, I think, from top prospect to key player. So I wonder if you could kind of describe what a player like that means to his team on the field and behind the scenes and why it feels like it's just so important that the Braves find a way to continue this relationship with Dansby, who has said time and again he wants to remain an Atlanta Brave. Well, I am watching it just like everybody else. I, I don't know what to say except that I'm just right there with you. And I'm, I'm a big fan of Dansby's. To me, he's just – he's a gamer. I, I don't know how else to say it. Yeah. You know, I think that's – and I think that's one of the best compliments you can give to somebody is that – puts everything on the line every night and shortstop at the major league level uh is just not that easy <laughs> it's just not that any position is easier you know what i'm saying sure. but shortstop requires so much athleticism you know you talk about austin riley playing third you got to be quick you got to have reactions but shortstop you got to have quick reactions you got to have range you got to mm -hmm. have an accurate arm you got to know your base runners. You got so much going on that what he has done and the player that he's turned into is, and I agree with you again this year. I I mean, it seems like there were stretches where he was the guy carrying the team for a month at a time. Mm -hmm. And if you could get that out of a shortstop, that's a remarkable player. So I'll be watching it closely, like all fans. And I have no obviously no inside information and what the delay is. But you're right, as we know, when we saw Freddie go and, you know, most players, let's be honest, don't finish with the team they started with. And I know that as well, but uh, yeah. most players don't. So that, unfortunately, when you look at this statistically, I would say, you know, there's, there's, it's out there that he may not be a brave. And 
the fact that he's from Marietta and just the trade to get him here, uh, uh-huh. just his his growth as a player and his leadership and his and the fact that he is a gamer, it's going to be a tough one to fill. Not they made a trade and got Matt Olson, and you don't really ever replace people. You just you know hope that you know they're good players. Whoever you know takes their player, he's going to be a hard guy to replace. Local guy that does what he does out there, Grant. Yeah. I'm I'm nervous about it. I don't know the latest, but I'm sure things are happening behind the scenes. Yeah, I'm sure everybody's a little bit nervous now that it's gotten to the point where we're not talking about an extension. We're talking about a guy that's walking into free agency here after the World Series. Talking with Dale Murphy, the longtime Atlanta Brave and Braves Hall of Famer, two-time MVP right here on From the Diamond on Sports Radio 92.9 The Game. And you brought up Matt Olson, and we talked briefly about Freddie Freeman. No real reason to rehash that whole thing, but we all know that that was quite an ordeal for this club and quite a big change as well. I felt like as Matt Olson came over, and you mentioned, you know, it's hard to replace somebody, and maybe you don't truly ever replace a player that comes before you. You just kind of come in and try to be the best version of yourself, the best player that you can be. Uh, with all of that said, what did you make of Matt Olson's first year in a Braves uniform? Well, I really like him. You know, it's interesting, Grant. He's kind of the same personality as Freddie, isn't he? He's, yep. You know, big, tall, uh, left-handed hitter, yep. and very good first baseman. And, you know, I have no complaints. Freddie had another good year for the Dodgers. Mm-hmm. And that's what he does. Uh, I think, again, Matt Olson, you know, psychologically, it's probably a little bit weird for a guy to walk into replacing, like you say, a, you know, a big name. And so, and a, a guy that had so much impact on the team. So it can be a psychological challenge. And I thought he met it really well. I'm sure he wants to hit for a better average next year, but. Still uh, had good run production and played great defense. I mean, if there's one thing, I guess that was the one thing I, you know, noticed. I hate to be negative. But overall, what he was walking into, I think he did a great job. And I think he'll have even even better next year now that he's, you know, probably settled. Yeah, I think that first year was critical to getting him settled in. And obviously everybody knew it was going to be a change once Freddie Freeman wasn't back at first base for the first time in over a decade. And that was going to be an adjustment for any club. And as you mentioned earlier, that's one thing that you know all too well. So wrap up here with Dale Murphy on From the Diamond on Sports Radio 92.9 The Game. You talked about, you know, sometimes you don't get to finish your career with the same team you started with. And as we all know, you ended up being a Philadelphia Philly for a little while, and now the Philadelphia Phillies are once again finding themselves in the World Series. They got past the Braves in the Division Series. They made their way right through the NLCS as they got through the Padres. They also knocked off the Cardinals on their way in. So they beat three very good teams to get to the World Series where they're staring at another very good team. I feel like the Astros are as good this year as they've been at any time over the last six, seven years. Uh, how do you size up this World Series? I know that uh, Philadelphia is a place you spend a little bit of time. I know we've seen them win a World Series here not too terribly long ago, but probably a little bit longer ago than Philly fans would like. Uh, what do you make of the chances of the Phillies as they match up with the Houston Astros in the World Series this year? Well, I think it's going to be a really interesting matchup in that we talk about the postseason and getting hot and getting hot at the right time. That's the Phillies. I feel like the narrative that I'm hearing, Grant, and what I believe as well is that this Astros team is as solid as you could get. Mm-hmm. But the Phillies got some mojo. <laughs> you know, yeah. it's, that's about people say, what advantages does Philly have over the Astros? And I'm like, I can't think of one. Right? You know, I think the Astros are a better ball club. But Philly's got this thing, you know, and when you have that thing psychologically as a team that 
you know, kind of helps you relax a little bit. Number one, you're the underdog. Everybody figures that. Yeah. But you're also playing really well. And not that Houston doesn't have an excited fan base there in Houston, but the, this Philly crowd is really unique and really energized, and they feed off of that. So I think it's going to be fascinating. I wouldn't be surprised to see it go seven games. Like nothing, <laughs> Nothing's going to surprise me. Uh, but, you know, I am happy for the organization. I had a good experience there. So, you know, if it's not going to be the Braves, I'm, uh, you know, it's fun to, to be a team I was associated with for a couple of years. But I'll tell you, this Astros team is, is solid up and down. I, I love the team. I've loved them for a few years. Uh, I think they're just built really well for the postseason. They don't strike out a lot. They can still manufacture runs. Mm-hmm. But yeah, it's going to be intriguing. But I, I isn't that what kind of what you hear, Grant? Is that the Phillies got some momentum? And that's you know, we'll see if it carries over. I guess. Yeah, I think the Phillies have made believers out of an awful lot of people on their way to the World Series. A club that yeah. finished third in their division and heard about the Mets and the Braves, the Braves and the Mets all summer long. Well, all they did was just find a way to get into October. And then they found a way to beat a good Cardinals team, beat a good Braves team, beat a good Padres team. And now they have their latest challenge. And we'll kind of find out if the Astros can finally get Dusty Baker, that long-awaited World Series ring as well. So a lot of storylines going into this October. Even though a year ago we were talking about a Braves World Series, and ultimately that went pretty well. We'll see who's able to come out on top here in 2022. He's Dale Murphy, longtime Atlanta Brave, two-time National League MVP, and, of course, a Braves Hall of Famer and former Philadelphia Philly for the purposes of this World Series preview as well. Murph, I appreciate your time as always. Look forward to chatting with you again soon. Thanks so much, Grant. Anytime. We'll take a quick break here on the show. When we come back, we'll talk about what's going on around the big leagues and, of course, take a look at what's happening in the World Series. That's coming your way next right here on From the Diamond on Sports Radio 92.9 The Game. Now, more From the Diamond with Graham McCauley on Sports Radio 92.9 The Game. And welcome back in. This is From the Diamond. Grant McCauley, Corey McCartney with you. Sports Radio 92.9 The Game from the Kia Studios. Thanks again to Dale Murphy for making all that time talking about, you know, what was a 2022 season for the Braves and an awful lot of highs, even if it ended on a low note. And, of course, uh, the World Series and everybody's focus. And Murph, being a former Brave, got to celebrate in 2021. I don't know if he'll celebrate quite the same way if the Phillies win it, but I'm sure that being able to watch a club that you used to play for and uh, have a little bit of uh, rooting interest in the World Series is uh, a lot of fun for him, so we'll see. I will say, Grant, that was a really great interview uh, with Murph, by the way, but I always find it funny to think about him and that Philly fan base. If you think about two you know, (laughs) opposing forces that you would not put together, you think about one of the nicest guys in baseball and a fan base that threw batteries at Santa Claus doesn't necessarily (laughs) seem like that they would jive together. You know, there's a, a card that I think perfectly encapsulates what was going on in the early 90s. Because, you know, the Phillies, that was a team that you know, Murph had talked to me many times about, you know, his track and how he ended up with the Philadelphia Phillies. Because it's one of the most misunderstood stories. It's yeah. not the Braves decided, hey, we don't want Dale Murphy anymore. It was he kind of felt like he needed a fresh start. And as you know from talking to him and, and, and interviewing him and having conversations with him over the years as well, he kind of sought out the trade so that he could go have that new opportunity and felt like maybe the Braves were needing to head in another direction as well. And obviously it worked out for Atlanta in terms of um, you know having David Justice take over in right field, win the Rookie of the Year, and of course the 1990s followed. For Murph, though, the knee injuries followed him into Philadelphia, and he really didn't get to you know have that second act that I think he would have liked to have had to close out his career, which is still, I think, a Hall of Fame career, and we'll find out one day if he's able to get in. But there's one picture, one baseball card that encapsulates what he was to the Philadelphia Phillies. It's a 1991 Donruss card. It's got Dale Murphy on it, and it's got Lenny Dykstra on it. And you got Murph 
as clean as can be, and it's in those Philly pinstripes. And then you got Lenny Dykstra standing there with a big, crazy, you know what, grin on his face, covered in dirt. And it's Mr. Clean and Dr. Dirt. And I just feel like it's one of the best cards uh, of that time. And it's just junk wax. It's nothing special, but it really, I, th- I think, captured exactly what Dale Murphy walked into with that crazy Philadelphia yeah, Phillies that's fantastic. Club. So if you have a chance to pick one of those up, I'm sure you can find one on eBay for $3.50. Oh, so jump on it now. So, there it is right there. So buy it now. Uh, but as we talked about the World Series a little bit there to close out that interview with Dale Murphy, and I know we're going to talk about it here, you know, obviously the Braves winning it last year has everybody in Atlanta in a fever pitch of, hey, we want to go back there and win this thing again. We don't want to wait another 25, 26 years for it to happen. And hopefully that is the case, and I think the Braves are a club that's built to win. But I just feel like there's so many things that echo between what the Braves did a year ago as an 88-win team taking over in the National League East because basically – the team that seemed like they were in the driver's seat fell apart. The Braves got hot at the right time, and in doing so, they rode it right on through October and won the World Series. I feel like the Phillies kind of did the same things, and even though they had to listen to the Braves and the Mets and the Mets and the Braves fighting it out all you know season long for the National League East crown, the Phillies, with their 87 wins, got into that wild card with this new expanded format, and they beat some very good teams to get where they are. And they took their first step towards winning the World Series by a big-time comeback against one of the best pitchers of this generation in Justin Verlander as they came back for a 6-5 victory over the Astros in Game 1 of the World Series. Yeah, and I think a big you know, kind of parallel between the, these Phillies and last year's Braves is those bullpens. You know, think about the, yep. the Braves' bullpen was not lights out during the regular season last year. Obviously, they became... You know this, uh, you know real, you know as the year driving force. Yeah. You know, as in the postseason, obviously, and we're a real big reason why they ended up as champions. The Phillies bullpen was still somewhat maligned, you know, into the into the season, and then Rob Thompson comes in, and all of a sudden he just starts pulling all the right levers, and we yeah. saw it play out in Game One. You know, in the way that he, you know, allowed Aaron Nola to stay in there, then he goes to Jose Alvarado and Zach Eflin, and then bringing in Ranger Suarez, the third best starter on this team, mm-hmm. uh, to get uh, Jordan Alvarez out. I mean, they obviously can still use Suarez in games three or four, yeah. but you think about burning all those, you know, uh, and he approached game one like it was game seven, and yeah. I think that was really an interesting approach. And they need they they were dead set on getting out of Houston with at least a split, and they made it happen. Yeah, they did, and I think that's interesting that you bring that up in terms of how do you manage each one of these games because. I feel like once you get to the World Series, and this is something the Braves did extremely well in the playoffs a year ago, and I I think wanted to have the opportunity to, but their offense really didn't give them the kind of leads that they were accustomed to having this year. But putting all that aside and just going back into game one of this World Series, that's how Rob Thompson managed it. He kind of made it, you know, the necessity being the mother of all invention, and he was going to find a way to protect a lead if they could get a lead or keep the game close as they could, whereas Dusty Baker had one of the greatest pitchers of the last 20 years on the mound in Justin Verlander, but where he's not the greatest has been in the World Series. He has an ERA over six in the World Series. He's never won a World Series game. He's cruising through the first three innings, and then the whole thing turns into the Phillies chipping away with a couple of crooked numbers, and the next thing you know, that 5 nothing lead had evaporated, and the Phillies were able to keep the game close, whereas you go back and look at this, to your point, the Astros' bullpen is one of the statistically best in baseball they really didn't get the opportunity to even get the chance to come in because I think Dusty rode with Justin Verlander, which I know it's tempting to do, but rode him into a position where that lead disappeared. Yeah, I mean, think about the season, though. Coming off Tommy John surgery, pushing 40, throws 190 innings. You know, He's the odds-on favorite to win the American League Cy Young. You can't fault Dusty no, Baker for thinking, no. okay, Justin Verlander's going to get this thing figured out. He's a first-ballot Hall of Famer. Um, you're probably going to win, again, his, his third you know, Cy Young 
but he, you know, zero and six with a five six eight ERA and seven World Series hearts going into last night. Now that's at six oh seven, the highest in World Series history with a minimum of thirty innings pitched. I mean, it's it's unfathomable that Justin Verlander is that bad on the biggest stage of them all. Now here's the stat that I saw for the career of Justin Verlander coming into Game One of this World Series. If Justin Verlander gets a five nothing lead, his team lifetime in his career is one hundred and seventeen and two. That was coming into last night. That was a loss after getting a 5 nothing lead with Justin Jeez. Verlander on the mound. So if you want to know how rare it is, well, 119 times it's happened in his career. Only two of those have been lost prior to last night's loss in the World Series. So it happens on the biggest stage. But I also look at this each year kind of individually being its own thing. I mean, the past, like what Justin Verlander did in the World Series with the Tigers, what, 10 or more yeah, years ago? Yeah, yeah. What does that really have to do with 2022? I would say not a whole lot because how does he match up against the Philadelphia Phillies? The first three innings, it looked like he matched up pretty well. It's just in these games and in, on this stage and what Rob Thompson showed is you have to have maybe a hair trigger to make that decision. Hey, I'm going to go to the bullpen right now. I'm going to get these guys in here right now. I'm going to win this game. I'm going to figure out tomorrow. I know I've got so-and-so starting, and we'll begin to piece it together. You do have the travel days, and I know that the the postseason has been kind of a little bit of a, a – uh, what a kind of a crash course with less travel days with no chance to reset your rotation. That's not the uh, the case in the World Series, though. And, you know, if you can get through this thing and use your best arms, it, it's got to feel a lot better that you did everything that you could rather than wondering, hey, should I have brought in so-and-so for that big matchup in the fourth inning? Yeah, it might be insulting to Justin Verlander, but I know Pedro Martinez said this on MLB Network last night. Justin will have the self-awareness of saying, hey, if you got to go to somebody else, I understand it because we're trying to win the World Series here. It's not about me getting five innings and qualifying for a win. So two things there. I mean, obviously you think Verlander knows himself better than anybody. And the other part of it is that and he Dusty, doesn't want to come on. He doesn't want obviously. to, but Dusty Baker has been here before. You think if anybody understands, and you know, Brian Snicker will talk to you about this, that it, you don't understand how you manage a World Series differently until you get to the World Series and have to manage differently yes. than you have any other series in your entire you know, coaching history. And I mean, the largest World Series comeback since 2002 when the Angels trailed the Giants 5-0 to win 6-5. The manager of those Giants was, of course, Dusty Baker. Yeah. He's been down this road before. You think if anybody you know, would be equipped to you know, kind of see those telltale signs and understand you, know, you can't let a lead slip away like that, you think it would be him. And here he is, you know, having watched, you know, the, I mean, I'll say one of the top three pitchers the last 20-plus years you know, cough up a 5-0 lead. It's not something that you would have put on the script, I feel, to expect in Game 1 of the World Series. Of course, I expected Zach Wheeler to get that Game 1 start, but Aaron Nola said that when they were celebrating the NLCS, or Rob Thompson told him right there, hey, buddy, you're on the mound in Game 1 of the World Series. And Nola's a longer-tenured Philly, and I, I can kind of understand that. And Nola's a great pitcher, but you know he got knocked around by the Houston Astros early, but he was able to hang around, give his club some innings. So it was kind of the inverse of Verlander. He didn't start off great. But he was able to give his club, I feel like, just enough. And then Rob Thompson was not shy about going to that bullpen and covering uh, basically the better part of the final five innings of this game and getting creative with Ranger Suarez as well. I also saw that the Phillies are the first team, or maybe the only team, since the 2020 Dodgers to have five different pitchers record a save in a single postseason. Wow, That's a pretty crazy stat to think about. I mean, look at last year. Will Smith recorded all the saves for the Braves in the postseason. But when you think about all the moments the Braves relievers <laughs> had last year, last October, to make it happen – Hey, it, it takes a, a, a very well-rounded bullpen, and the Phillies have managed to put that thing together, where, whether it's Alvarado, Sir Anthony Dominguez, 
whether it's Zach Eflin going from being a starter for his yeah. whole career to being a key reliever, or David Robertson, who's jumped into this thing as well with a trade with the Cubs. I mean, they have a much better bullpen now than they've had, really, I think, at any point in the last decade. And you obviously we're doing this about two and a half hours before Game 2 starts, but you think about the way that they utilize that pen in Game 1. Sir Anthony Dominguez throws tw- 24 pitches in one and two-thirds. David Robertson throws 25. Jose Alvarado only threw seven in, in one inning. Zach Eflin goes 20. If Wheeler goes deep into this game... Every one of those guys is conceivably available yep. tonight as yep. well. I mean, it's this thing's set up pretty well for the the Phillies to get out of uh, Houston, you know, ahead. And you think all time in best of seven postseason series, the teams that win Game One have won sixty five percent of the time. So yep. going for a two zero lead tonight, the Phillies are two thirds of the time. That's how that ESPN Cy Young predictor works that's as well. So <laughs> hey, right. we we got historical precedent on our side. That's what's going on in the World Series Game Two, of course, coming your way. On Saturday night, then the Philly crowd is going to enjoy it coming to Citizens Bank Park for Halloween beginning night. on Monday. Halloween, how appropriate, with a lot of hooligans and the Philly fanatic, of course, leading the charge. So they've already got the costumes. Be that as it may, an exciting start to the World Series. We'll continue to monitor that and uh, talk about it here on From the Diamond as it rolls on. As we roll on, though, a lot of other news around the big leagues. We'll cover that next right here. Grant McCauley, Corey McCartney on Sports Radio 92.9 The Game. Taking a look around the league with more of our From the Diamond with Graham McCulley on Sports Radio 92.9 The Game. And welcome back in as we wrap up here on From the Diamond on Sports Radio 92.9 The Game. Grant McCauley and Corey McCartney with you. We hope you've enjoyed the show so far. We appreciate former Braves great Dale Murphy joining us, and we appreciate you making us part of your sporting weekend. Make sure you subscribe wherever you get your podcast and find us on the Odyssey app as well. Corey, let's take a look around the big leagues beyond what's just going on in the World Series, we know there's kind of a moratorium on the bigger news, and of course, free agency doesn't begin until the World Series ends. But managerial news continues to flow very freely, and Skip Schumacher is a new manager of the Miami Marlins. He takes over after Don Mattingly and the club agreed that they had pretty much reached the end of their term there. So the Marlins were in the market for a new manager about three weeks or so, and they go with some young blood. I think this is an interesting hire for Kim Ang and for what Miami's looking to build there. And you're gonna to have to get to work on that roster too. So this is Kim Ang's first real hire, right? I mean, this it is looks her like, getting, yeah, 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 this is her getting her guy in that role. And it's interesting to think that this is the fourth consecutive Cardinals bench coach to move on from that role to being a rookie manager for a major league club. Huh. So you've got David Bell with the Reds, yeah. Mike Schilt, who was with the Cardinals, yep. Oliver Marmol, who's obviously now with, with the, Cardinals, the Cardinals, Schumacher, and you know he's the the fourth one of that group. I mean, that's uh, that's a nice little run there. Yeah, it pretty much lets you know it's it's like um, just you're next in line right. for the big league job coming along, and it might not be the very next big league job, but chances are that somebody's going to keep an eye on you. And the Cardinals have been known to be a club that finds its way into October and has quite a winning tradition. So if you're somebody involved with that organization, it's not surprising that you get a few calls from a few other organizations. Now, you look at the the landscape of the National League East. Hiring a new manager is something that, yes, the Marlins needed to do because you got to have somebody piloting the ship, but they got to get some work done on finding a way to, A, re-energize that market. And I think the number one way that you're going to do that, of course, is going to be to win. They have one of the best pitchers in baseball in Sandy Alcantara. They've got a very good starting rotation and the bones of some very good prospects that could get even better in that regard. I think they can build a bullpen. Most clubs can if you get creative and spend a little money, of course. You might need to you know, buy in a couple of big free agents to kind of put you over the top, but they've got some good young arms. But how are they going to figure out a way to score some runs? Because they have swung and missed at some free agent deals. Our friend Jorge Soler went down there. He got hurt. That's kind of a bust thus far. Uh, Vasil Garcia was also another bust. I mean, Miguel Rojas is a good fielding shortstop, but not really an offensive force. Jazz Chisholm looks like a star in the making, but they don't really have answers on the corners uh, as of right now. And they've got some real questions in the outfield. And they kind of find some power from somewhere. 
this is a Marlins team that just doesn't seem to be close to stepping up into what the Phillies are doing right now, what the Braves did last year. I mean, the Mets won 101 games, so all due respect, there's a lot going on in this division, and the Marlins and the Nationals are kind of at the bottom of that list. So when we talk about Kim Ng getting Schumacher in that managerial role, you go back a year ago, and it looked like they were going to be players in that free agent market. That they, you know, they were they were talked that there was they were going to bring in Nicholas Castellanos before he ended up with the Phillies, and yeah. looks like a Gold Glove outfielder uh, in the postseason, by the way. But <laughs> once in uh, a while. There's been talk that they're going to make potentially some moves to address their outfield situation. So Pablo Lopez, a name that was you know bandied about before this last trade uh, deadline. So you know maybe they end up moving on from him, but clearly they need some kind of a spark. And you know Soler had his back issues. Jazz Chisholm had his issues. You know keeping him off the field as well. They have plenty of pieces. It's just like there's not there's something missing there, and I don't I don't exactly know what it is. You know I, because they have the starting they've had starting pitching for. You know, ten years. No, they've it's had it's the pitching. lineup. Yeah. It's, it's been the lineup. It'll continue to be the lineup. I mean, and they do have a couple of pieces, but they don't have pieces. What I would say, like plural, like multiple different options of okay, well, this five tool prospects coming up. They, they don't have their Ronald Acuna Jr., their Michael Harris, their whoever it may be. Some of the trades they made, and really all of them, when you consider trading away Yelich, trading away Ozuna, that trade worked. Trading away Stanton was to get rid of the money, but the Ellis trade was a complete, it was an abject failure. Yeah. That one hurt them an awful lot because Lewis Brinson didn't really become the center fielder of the future. They're still looking for the center fielder of the future, as far as I'm concerned. They do have a couple of nice young players that might, uh, you know, mature into some good major league hitters, but you needed to go out and get a, a Soler or go get a Garcia, somebody that could kind of fortify. They had Jesus Aguiar, but they let him go as well. Mm-hmm. So all these thumpers that they had, these veteran guys, you know, do they want to continue to try to find some of those? Or are they going to be able to, you know, through player development, you know, create some of their own stars? That is a thing I think that's been missing from an offensive side. You know, Jazz Chisholm was a, a nice trade for them, and it, it turns out a good trade for both teams because Zach Gallen, <laughs> who came over in the Ozuna yeah. trade, went out to Arizona, has been a great young right-handed pitcher. And then you got Jazz Chisholm over, who has been, I think, probably the – most exciting young player that the Marlins have seen since uh, Jose Fernandez in my book. Yeah, I would absolutely agree with that. And you think, you know, if if they look to move Pablo Lopez, I mean, think about, you know, Aloy Jimenez from the White Sox. I mean, this is a guy who, you know, has a club-friendly deal. He's making 10-3 uh, next season. Um, he's got, you know, he signed through 2024, has team options for 25 and 26, power threat. I mean, really checks a lot of the boxes that the Marlins would have. The White Sox and obviously using more starting pitching to go mm-hmm. along with what's a really strong group for them. So those are the kind of names I think. I don't think they're going to be making any crazy deal where you're talking about them getting a you know a top ten player at the position. But I think a move like that might just be what they need to just get a little bit better offensively. Yeah, it's going to have to be incremental. I think yeah. a little bit better each year, and that was the hopes last year. I mean, Soler getting hurt and Garcia being a bust in the first year that didn't really help out. But you know what can they do to get creative and score some runs? Because if they do start scoring runs, I do think they've got enough pitching to be a team that can be competitive. Does that mean it's going to make them a 500 or better team in the first year or or next year? No, probably not. But they could be a little bit more of a pain in the side of some other clubs to back to the point where you say, hey, the Marlins may not win this division, but they may stop somebody from doing it because they put up a big fight against this team or that team or another team. Then it becomes a, a difficult thing to go into Miami and deal with their starting pitching and say they hold on to Pablo Lopez and somehow figure out a way to bring in somebody else and score some runs, they could get there a little bit quicker yeah. than not. But we'll see how that all plays out. A really big story coming out of Milwaukee this week as well, where uh, David Stearns is now stepping down from being the head of baseball operations for that. And that's a surprise move. Uh, I mean, you don't see that too terribly often. Now, they're going to um, elevate their uh, general manager to take over in this case. But for Stearns, 
you know, this is the, the kind of candidate that a lot of other clubs would look to and say, hmm, mm-hmm. how could we get him to come over and head our baseball operations? What exactly is going on in here? And, you know, how do we get him over here? But he's under contract with Milwaukee. So I was hearing and reading that it might take a trade in order to get huh. Stearns to his next destination. So where could that be? And does this sound like a move that could make a club like the New York Mets just a little bit better? Because I still think they're searching for answers in the baseball operations Yeah, department. so Stearns is under contract for the 2023 season. Uh, apparently he's going to remain with the Brewers in an advisory capacity. During his press conference, he said he's not going anywhere, uh, obviously undermining speculation that he could end up being with the Mets, who have no one in that president of baseball ops uh, title. Uh, obviously, you know, they uh, kind of things uh, went sideways and they had hired, they had actually interviewed Stearns prior to hiring uh, Billy Epler last November uh, as their GM. But think about Stearns, what he was able to accomplish in Milwaukee, you know, four consecutive postseason appearances from 18 to 21. Uh, they missed a fifth consecutive one by just one game. So what does he do in a situation where you have an owner that's willing to spend and you have mm-hmm. a lot more resources? I mean, I think it's kind of a tantalizing you know, situation potentially if you're the Mets. But I do wonder if they had got, reached the postseason, mm-hmm. is he gone? I mean, if they don't make the hater deal, you know, which obviously completely changed right. the complexity of that clubhouse, yep. is he is he still there? I mean, it, maybe. I mean, I don't know if it's one deal here or there that, yeah. that changes the, the complexion of it, but clearly it was a disappointing year for the Milwaukee Brewers. I mean, they fell apart in the second half. It, it helped the St. Louis Cardinals out tremendously. Hell, it helped out the Philadelphia <laughs> Phillies to find their way into yeah. the postseason as well. But, you know, Stearns is 37 years old, so it, the next club that gets him knows that they're getting a young, up-and-coming executive who already has some experience already has a bit of a pedigree and has already accomplished some things. And, by the way, he's from Manhattan. So going to New York is not altogether that far-fetched, I don't think. Now, will it happen this year? Maybe not. But could it happen over the next couple of years? Whether Steve Cohen says, no, not right now, or no, we're not looking into that, or whether Stern says, hey, I'm not going anywhere just yet, you know there's going to be a next stop for him. I can't imagine it's going to be, I'll be a special advisor for the rest of my 30s and 40s and in the, in the, really the prime years of his career. I don't think they're going to be filming Moneyball 2 about the guy in a mid-market that just doesn't want to go take a swing in a big market if a club wants to come in, pay him, and give him the payroll to go build a winner. So he was previously uh, in the front office of the Astros. So, yeah. I mean, that could potentially be a maneuver, too, that yeah. he could end up you know, moving back down there. Well, we'll see how all of that plays out. But as we are kind of devoid of player moves right now, it's interesting to see some of these managerial moves and some of the executive moves that are going to happen over the course of the winter as well. It's not just the hot stove for the players, though that I think is probably the most interesting part. Corey, I wanted to wrap up this week's show with a kind of a discussion that I have been a little bit fascinated by because I grew up, as you know, many folks did here around Atlanta, watching the Braves of the 1990s and getting accustomed to Atlanta winning the division, obviously. They did that 14 consecutive seasons, saved the strike year. They went to the World Series five times, but they only won one World Series in the 1990s despite all those trips. And, you know, I've heard a lot of people kind of look at it and say, yeah, well, you know, it's the Braves were a good team, but they should have won more World Series. I think they should have won in 91. That's the one I feel like kind of got away. You talk to former Braves players, they'll say 96 is the one that got away because they were up 2-0 on the Yankees coming home. You wish you could have closed out that World Series. Those are the two that really sting. At 1999, it was what it was. The Yankees were the better team. They won. 1992, I feel like the Blue Jays, they just kind of outplayed them, and they took that World Series away from them. And then, of course, the Braves beat Cleveland in 1995 to win the one and only World Series championship for Atlanta until 2021. But you look at what the Los Angeles Dodgers have done since 2013, primarily under Dave Roberts, so Don Mattingly was there at the start of that whole deal. They have won the National League West nine out of ten times. The one time they didn't, it took a 107-win Giants team to take it away from them. 
The Dodgers have gone routinely to the LCS. They have gone to the World Series. They have won the World Series once in the 2020 shortened season. But you start to look at the parallels between the 1990s Braves and the Dodgers of the last 10 years. One World Series between the two. I don't think it's altogether that dissimilar, but I haven't really heard too many people, at least the narrative to begin, that, hey, the Dodgers, they just they don't get the job done. Whereas you hear the Braves, like, they just don't get the job done. I, but I think we're looking at, and the Dodgers are spending an awful lot of money, by the way. I don't know if you're scoring that at home, but I feel like there's a similarity here that maybe some people hadn't realized until maybe right about now. So in the divisional era, the Dodgers 613 winning percentage over a 10-year span is the best mark since the 93-2002 Rays also had a 613 clip of a winning percentage if you want to draw mm-hmm. further parallels. But I, you mentioned the payroll. So during the Braves' run, they averaged the sixth-highest payroll and were never higher than third. They were uh, there 94, 95, 96, 98, 99, and 2003. Yeah. The Dodgers have averaged the number two payroll in the last 10 seasons of postseason bursts, including ranking number one six times, including uh, each of the last two seasons. You don't say. And then you think about the players they bring in, right? You've uh-huh. got you know four MVPs on the roster, but Bellinger and Kershaw are the only homegrown ones. Obviously, you've got Mookie Betts, Freddie, you know, Freddie. Freddie Freeman. You had previously Max Scherzer, who you know was a former Cy Young winner. David Price. You know, David Price. Who are the? I mean, think about the 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 Braves' major acquisitions during those fourteen straight. Really, goes down to two players. When you think about the guys that were the defining acquisitions okay. during those fourteen players, so Greg Maddox. Yep, and I'm interested in what the second one is. Greg McGriff. You. Okay, I, 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 that's mine. Yeah, I just wondered if there was yeah, any, so, anything else that kind of stuck in there. Think about the steps that the Mets, the Dodgers have taken yeah. to continue this run of dominance in, in in terms of the payroll and how deep you're willing to make things hurt to acquire players. Yeah. I just, to me, it's just it's it's more it's more damning of what they've not been able to accomplish over that ten year stretch when you think about kind of those you know stacked up against what the Braves. You think do. about the Braves, and I could go around and play this game pretty much for every season during the '90s about where did this guy come from? Was he a homegrown player? And the answer, more times than not, was yes. Whether it was Ron Gant, David Justice, Tom Glavin, Steve Avery, whoever it was, and, and so many more, it seemed like everywhere you looked around. You know, John Smoltz was traded as a prospect. That's clearly one that's been talked about quite a bit. But, yeah, you needed Fred McGriff. You went out and got Fred McGriff. They get a veteran catcher, usually, that was somebody outside the organization, but that starting staff was majority homegrown. Then they went and got Greg Maddox. They signed an MVP in Terry Pendleton, who hit two thirty the year before, got a multi-year contract off of that, seemed to be a guy maybe heading to the wrong side of 30 on the downslope of his career. The big signings they make are – dependable glove guy at third base and first base and shortstop yeah. in 91 yeah. and a base stealing threat and a guy who moonlights as an NFL player or is it he moonlights as a baseball player? I don't know. But either way, <laughs> you know, those were the kind of moves that they were making in the offseason of 90 of 1990. And I just uh, I'd be fascinated to see what Twitter would be saying if the Braves <laughs> went out and got part time NFL safety so and so to be their backup center fielder or if they went out and got a guy with one career home run to potentially be their starting shortstop or the guy coming off knee surgery in a 2:30 season at third base and a guy coming off back surgery 2 years before that's never played more than 140 games to play first base people will be losing their minds but this was what John Sherholtz <laughs> yeah. did and yep. it also helped having Ron Gant, David Justice, Tom Glavin, John Smoltz and so many more and build a bullpen you can do that too yeah, I mean, I just to, to me, it's just the depths with which the Dodgers were willing to maintain this winning, uh, having four MVPs. Spent. They spent all the money. You know, they were willing. And, you know, it's, it's not as though their farm system is is to the you know the depths now. I mean, they they still no, are continuing still to, to to produce players, but um, just the fact that you know they were willing to go out and, and acquire those kind of players, and obviously bringing in Freeman this yep. past year. I mean, 
And the payroll is reflective of that. They mm-hmm. they are spending to get this done, and they have one championship to show for it. Yeah, I just feel like there were an awful lot of parallels there. And as it is the off season, and we had to cancel our postseason run earlier than we wanted to here on the show, we're going to go ahead and bring it up and there just kind of take a look back through the looking glass at it maybe yesteryear for the Braves and what the current situation is for a team like the L.A. Dodgers. Corey, as always, really appreciate it. Enjoyed it. Look forward to doing it again next week. Absolutely, man. It was a blast. All right. Thank you to all of you who made us part of your Saturday. Hope you're enjoying your college football and everything else here on Sports Radio 92.9 The Game. Abe Gordon is next for you. Dom, as always, thank you. And we will catch you next week on From the Diamond on Sports Radio 92.9 The Game.